Good morning, South City Church. What a pleasure it is to be with you here this morning. What a beautiful name it is. What a wonderful time of worship. How, how blessed we are to have a music team like this who has Jesus in their hearts and love lifting up his name. It's just such a pleasure to do it with them. I enjoy that so much. And really, there is no name given among men greater than the name of Jesus Christ. That is, is such a great worship song. And to move from there into the Word, which is really all about the risen Christ, is, is so, it's just so perfect. And, you know, I think of, as I was just singing with all of you this morning, lifting up the name of Jesus, uh, the thought occurred to me that Jesus is the number one first responder. You ever thought of it that way? He's the number one rescuer in all of mankind, firstborn of all creation. There's no name greater than the name of Jesus. And that thought came to me because I was thinking about Memorial Day. You know, there's a, this kind of an awkward phrase, how is your Memorial Day weekend? You know, day and weekend, never mind. That's my OCD thing. I'm a grammar Nazi. But anyway, I hope you've been enjoying the Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, I, I know that many of you remember why we celebrate Memorial Day. It's because of first responders. It's our military. And in, in that group, military is paramilitary, fire, police, all the people that serve us so amazingly well, including medical and teachers, first responders. And first and on our minds on Memorial Day are the military, of course, especially those thousands of white crosses. You know, when you go to a, a veteran's cemetery and you look at the hundreds, hundreds, or the national cemetery, thousands upon thousands. They gave their all. You know, there's one verse that comes to mind on Memorial Day, and that is John 15, 13. No greater love has any man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. What's amazing to me about our great Jesus is he didn't just say that. He, he, he performed it as our great first responder. And everybody who comes after in any way and hopes to lay down their life for the cause of others, especially their friends or brothers. Listen, they're walking in his footsteps. And this is Memorial Day, so we need to give honor to them and remember them, but in the light of that great first responder, Jesus Christ. So if there's a veteran here or a former military, uh, fire, police, whatever, please stand. Now, thank you, thank you, thank you. And through you, we honor all of the families that have suffered loss and all of those who gave their lives. Well, now, I'd like to just get right back into this series that we call the story of the church. This story has been all about the good news of our risen Savior and how that news spread throughout the world, how people shared it, how people heard it, 
how people believed it and they were baptized into God's family of families, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that we call the church. And you know what's really exciting to me is that the things that happened then, some people have a tendency to believe, oh, that's written in Scripture, you know, and it's just so amazing, so amazing. Well, it is. It's an amazing story. It's an exciting story. But that story is happening here today, now. And the things that are happening here today and now are every bit as weighty, as important, and the central of the gospel. Still today, the name of Jesus is all of history, and our history is really revolving around who he is, what he came to do, and uh, it's just, listen, there's no greater miracle than when the grace of God convinces a soul who could never see it, blind, interested only in themselves, suddenly they come awake and they say, Jesus is real. He's alive. I believe in him. That's a miracle of God. Greater than any healing, greater than anything you could imagine. That is a miracle of God. And what's amazing to me, and I think back, you know, what has changed since the first century? Absolutely nothing. Our Jesus is real. He's alive. He's still turning souls to himself. A couple weeks ago, didn't we have eight people ask Jesus to be their Savior? Drew this morning announces a baptismal service. This is our day. This is our time in the book of Acts. So, And in that story, at some point in time, I'm thinking back now to the book of Acts, uh, that, that time that's so like our times, truly. You know, the, at, at some point, the, the focus shifts from Peter and John and James, and it begins to concentrate fully on the Apostle Paul. And that is why Drew's messages over the last several weeks have been leading us through the life and times of the Apostle Paul, because he was God's chosen instrument to take the message of the risen Christ. It occupied, I think, all of his waking moments and all of his actions, and he suffered greatly for it. Uh, he took the good news in spite of incredible opposition, incredible opposition, beatings, lashings, imprisonments, and so forth, suffered terribly, and yet he, he just kept kept going because he knew the truth. And he knew everywhere he went when people believed, he was serving the very body of Christ here on this earth. And that's who you are. You are children of the living God. Don't you love to sing that? I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. That is, if you have opened your heart and received the risen Lord Jesus and believed in him, confessing your sins. Listen, you're a child of God, just like everybody we read about in the book of Acts, although not all of them were children of God. So last Sunday, Drew took us through the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 25. And just to do a little recap for you this morning, it was about Festus, who had become the new Roman governor, procurator of Judea, and he goes up the hill to Jerusalem. He spends more than a week with the leaders of the Jews there, the high priests and the elders, and he really discovers they want him dead. And they have all of these accusations, but they're all somehow couched in their religion. So 
he said he being a good uh, dedicated servant of Roman civil law he says all right you all come with me up to Caesarea and we'll have a hearing and we'll have these men come before you and you remember how uh, those Jews the the leaders among the Jews they intimidated Paul and gathered around him you know just to make him feel small and 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 ridiculous and and so uh, that was a, a very difficult uh, hard moment to hear but Paul denied all the charges very simply and clearly he had committed no offense against the Jews he had committed no offense against the temple and he had committed no offense against Caesar which he knew would be maybe first in Festus' mind. Now, Festus, corruptly, to please the Jews, he had to balance things, and he was a politician after all, told him that, well, listen, why don't you go to Jerusalem? He offered him to, Paul to go to Jerusalem and be tried. But Paul sensed their trap. He knew that was a, that was a way to, 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 to entrap him. And so he, he just had this godly boldness, Drew told us about last time, this, this sense, all right, you know, Festus, try me. Fight, you, you know yourself I haven't done anything wrong, but, but I'm, I'm ready. I'm willing to die if I've done something wrong. Just try me. And he really kind of challenged him. You yourself know that I haven't done anything wrong. So Festus, eventually at the very end of that passage, grants Paul's appeal to be tried in Caesar's courts. This is where I need to be tried. This is the venue for me. I'll be tried in Caesar's courts, not by the Jews in, in Jerusalem. So this week's reading uh, is continuing at verse 13 in Acts chapter 25. We are going to continue with Festus and Paul and add two new characters, which is King Agrippa II and his sister Bernice. So if you have your Bible with you, please open your Bible to Acts 25, and we'll enter back into the story of the church at this, you, this key moment. And the verse 1, if you're ready to read with me, I'll read it. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And I'm going to stop right there and say dot, dot, dot. I'd like to call us just to prayer together right now as we continue on in this passage. Thank you, dear Lord, for your word, which has caused us to be born again to a living hope a hope of glory, a hope of being forever your children, kept in your loving embrace, dear Lord. Thank you that the acts of your dear children continue to be as important today as they were in the first century. Help us to see your hand at work, Lord, to see your mission amid all the complexities, difficulties, and trials and challenges of our daily life above us, above all this morning. Give us insight into how we can receive your word into our hearts, apply it in our own life, Walk in your wisdom and in your love this day and in the week ahead. Amen. So in our passage in verse 1, we see that from the very moment Festus pronounced, to Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you shall go, 
Only a few days have passed. And then the text says, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So here comes the king to Caesarea, and we know this is Herod, actually Herod Agrippa II. And why do they come to Caesarea? Well, very simply, to greet, the scripture says it, greet Festus, the new governor of Judea, under whom, as vassals of Rome, they were subjects. And as subjects, therefore, they were forced to deal with the Roman governor, the procurator. And their livelihood, the livelihood of the king and his subjects and all of Judea, every, every place that he had authority, depended on what Rome allowed, allowed the king by way of taxation and all sorts of other matters. And so they cultivated, I imagine, through forced smiles and gritted teeth, the very best of relationships. You understand how that works, politics. And Scripture then goes on to say, and as they stayed there many days, and I just want to stop here because I want to contrast first Verse 1, some days have passed, a few days. We're in the same story, in other words. Same things are going on. Then in verse 2, we read, and after many days, or as they stayed there, many days. You see, there's a contrast here. Rome needed these royals, these local royals. They needed them under their control. And what better way to control them than to pander to their vanity, their love of luxury, and make them as comfortable as possible. So if there's a pause in the storyline, you remember recently we read that there was this pause of two years. Paul is just there in prison. Nothing's going on. Two years, can you imagine? And now there's a big pause in the story. What it is is King Agrippa and his sister Bernice on vacation in Caesarea. So here they are, many days in the very lap of luxury, the posh uh, guest quarters of Rome and Caesarea. And so it's really interesting who just is this Herod Agrippa II. You know, his grandfather was Herod the Great, of which we read in Scripture. And his father happened to be Herod Agrippa I. And Herod Agrippa I had killed James, the Apostle James, one of the twelve, and he had arrested Peter. You know how that story turned out. And in a renowned moment of pride and exaltation, which is, which is famous in Scripture and it's also in the book of Acts, and we went through it, he was stricken by an angel of God and eaten by worms. Uh, that was his father. And that happened to our Herod Agrippa II, when he was only 17 years old. What did that young man think about his father? What had he learned? I don't know what his, his response was to how his father lived and how his father died, but I think what we do know is that our Herod Agrippa here in our story did have a Jewish education. He had a Jewish upbringing because he knew the prophets and he knew the Holy Scriptures. Interestingly. Now, just what he was doing here these many days with his sister Bernice happened to be the talk of every town. 
We know that from historians, from Josephus, talked about the scandals. Herod Agrippa II with his inseparable sister, Berenice. And so, you know, I, I don't think that in the ancient Middle East they had tabloids like the, like the British today, you know. And I, but I think there was more here than unsavory talk about tactless costume choices, if you get my drift. Bernice was not the only bad company that was with Herod Agrippa. He was known in his, in his times to accompany the Roman general Titus. They were like really, really close friends. He'd go on his campaigns wherever he'd go. Now, it wasn't, wouldn't be too many years from the time of our story that Roman general Titus, possibly even accompanied still with his friend uh, Herod Agrippa II, is going to sack and destroy Jerusalem, uh, killing most of its inhabitants and sending them uh, to all corners of the earth, also destroying the temple, the second temple, leaving, as Jesus had prophesied, not one stone upon another. And so here is this man, and we see his character, character in history and his character in Scripture. And you sometimes just have to wonder, this man that knew the prophets, that knew the Scriptures, one toe in the kingdom of God and the other planted firmly in this world. His, his, his main preoccupation was relationships with the Romans rather than relationships with his own people. To have, it's amazing. So... The fact we have from our story if, of, about him is that he had both feet planted firmly many days with his sister Bernice here in this posh, fit for royalty guest quarter, uh, quarters of Rome and Caesarea. So Festus has the fortitude to disturb King Herod Agrippa's long vacation. And so we read in verse 14 how the story continues. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them, It's not the customs of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met his accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. So Festus tells Agrippa of the two actions that he's taken thus far regarding Paul. First, he heard the Jews' arguments and case, whatever they had accusations they had against him in Jerusalem. And then second of all, he arranged a proper Roman hearing according to all the strict standards of the Roman civil law in Caesarea, in this hall of uh, the, uh, the audience hall. And so now, in verse 18 of our text, Festus goes on to really lay out his dilemma before Herod Agrippa. When the, verse 18 we're reading, when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. 
Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul appealed to be kept in the custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And so certain phrases in this text that we just read help us to really understand Felix, I mean, not Felix, sorry, Festus, vexing predicament. Verse 18, notice these words, Paul's accusers brought no charge. Verse 19, points of dispute about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who Paul says is alive. Verse 20 goes right to these words, being at a loss as to how to investigate. And in verse 21, I ordered him to be held until I could send him. In other words, until all the strict standards of civil, Roman civil law could be met, I couldn't do anything other than hold him. So here's his dilemma. Number one from this text that we just read. He's a governor, a procurator, Roman. Procurator, you know, today has has become the base of words like prosecutor. It's like today's AG. So like today's Leslie Rutledge or, or you know, AG on the national level here. He's a, he's a man of Rome. He's a man of the law. He can't send Paul to Caesar's court with no charges. And so because Paul is a Roman citizen, Festus' responsibilities are twofold. Number one, He's got to defend Paul's rights as a Roman citizen, or it's off with his head, right? And number two, if he's going to try the man, he better do it with strict prosecutorial uh, legal information, proof of his guilt. And prosecute his wrongs according to that, those strict standards of Roman law. And so far, he's done a passable job, really, uh, of defending Paul's rights. After all, he's had arranged for civil Roman hearings. That's his job. And he's, he's, he's doing it fairly well, keeping Paul from those knives that are you know, always pointed at him by the Jewish leadership. And so, but if Festus were to fail, understand his dilemma here too. If Festus were to fail either in protecting Paul's rights or in prosecuting him according to all the, the accusations that have been raised so far against him, all of them false, we know, but nevertheless, if he fails in prosecuting him properly, it's off with his head. The ax wouldn't be on Paul's neck, it'd be on his own. So the next thing, which I think is very, very important in this text, is right in the very middle of it appropriately, kind of like I heard one pastor once give this illustration. Not about this passage, but it was about the, the, the book of Job, where it's all darkness until this one bright moment happens, and Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. You don't remember that from Job? Just all darkness, and there's this bright, it's like a ray. You know, imagine a, a window opening up high in a, into an attic, and the sun rises, and that beam of light shines down through all that 
darkness lightening everything up. That's kind of like what's happening here. We have this story with all these details and things and happening and Roman law and Jewish questions and so forth. And right in the very middle of it, the question of the resurrection is just highlighted. It's right there. It shines. It shines like a ray through darkness. It's beautiful. And Paul, the reason that's shining through all of these texts, through all of these things, is because Paul knows Jesus is alive. He knows how Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. What was he involved in? He was involved in darkness. Darkness was his, his ground of being. He wanted them dead. He wanted them. He had the same hearts that he saw in the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, the same heart. He had the same aspirations, murder. And he did it, wanted it for the glory of God. But he knows he's alive. This is the Jesus that appeared to him on the road to Damascus, blinding him with the brightness of his glory. Paul had been persecuting the church, and so Jesus asked him. It's an amazing moment. Jesus asked him, Saul, why are you persecuting me. All we knew from Acts up to that point was that Paul was persecuting Christians like you and me, people that believe in Jesus. He was persecuting the church. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And I take it from there to this simple application. If you have received Jesus Christ, the living, resurrected Jesus Christ into your heart, by faith, then you are a child of His. You belong to Him. And anything anyone does to you, against you, any hand raised against you, is really raised against your Lord and your Savior. And that's the truth. That's the truth. So Jesus appeared at Paul then and at other times in one case, telling him, don't worry, I'm going to protect you from all that want to take your life. Just teach, just speak, just, just make disciples. Another time, he tells him, I am sending you to Rome. Now, Jesus spoke that to him. He knows it's true. And that's part of the confidence that you see. That's part of the confidence in Paul's boldness. He knows who's in charge. The Lord told him, I've got a plan. No matter what they're trying to do against you, going to change. It's not going to change my plan. He knew that. So by way of application, I just want to ask you, do you know that Jesus is alive? Is he alive to you? Do you relate to him as, as living? There's a hymn, uh, sometimes my generation, there's hymns that we just like to repeat over and over, and sometimes I'm so thankful when Daryl and Kim and the worship team bring them in. Love to hear the old hymns. One of my old favorites, and I know some of you are going to smile and some of you are going to go, huh, you know, but is these words. I come to the garden alone. While the dew is still on the roses. And he walks with me. And he talks with me. He tells me I'm his own. And if so, if those words touch you, if they, if they speak to you, the old hymns, the words, you know, that's the way it really is. You are his own if you've received him. He's part of you and you're part of him. There's a union here that's taking place. It's a beautiful thing. And so 
So identify here with this lowly man in prison garb and chains. Identify with this man upon, against whom the whole world has risen up. Identify with him because he's just like you. And you are just as precious to Jesus as he was. And so the resurrection is in central focus in this passage, challenging and convicting the hearts and minds, ours, and of two very skeptical worldly leaders. And so Herod Agrippa is intrigued. Everyone loves a magic show. <laughs> you know, he's intrigued. And so we read in verse 22, and Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. And Festus, tomorrow you will hear him. And so the whole context of Paul before Agrippa shows us that this is idle curiosity on the part of Herod Agrippa II. Idle curiosity. Agrippa's great uncle, Herod Antipas, was just as curious about Jesus. I want to read to you, just going back, to show you what this man's attitude really was. This is like an inherited gene, this attitude, you know? But Herod said in Luke 9, 9, this is, this is the Herod who said, it's actually the uncle of our present Herod Agrippa II. This is Herod Antipas. He said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him, Herod Antipas, in Luke chapter 9. And then in Luke 23, we read, And Herod, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Yes, you know, a magic show, why not? Apparently, this was the first century equivalent of flipping through Facebook videos. Oh, did I step on some toes? I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And mine. Okay. Be honest. So the next day opens with lots of pageantry, pomp and circumstance. Verse 23. Okay, let's read it together. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Here's the picture. Now, pardon my alliteration. It's a pastor's problem. Admit, alliteration, <laughs> okay. Pomp, prominence, power, pride, and then there was Paul. Paul. You get the contrast? All oh, this greatness. And listen, it's happening to you every single day. Flip on the TV. Oh, this guy's great. That guy's great. Look at this. That guy's bad. That bad. You know, and so forth. That's, the way, that's, that's our life. Same in those days. What has really changed? So here's this little man in prison garb and chains. And legend, according to legend, Paul was short, bow-legged, and hook-nosed. And here he is, nothing compared to the luminaries of that day. And so 
here he stands in this prison outfit, changed. And it's, it's, you know, I think there's a worldly, there's been a worldly redefinition of the word awesome. And now all that awesome really means is just cool. It's cool. And Paul is the opposite of everything that was awesome in that day. It's all awesome. They entered with pomp, great pomp, the scripture says. Paul entered in chains and a prison uniform and was short of stature. Note the difference. Festus, Agrippa, all the prominent people could only proclaim their own greatness. And that, a sham, lie after lie after lie, impression management what it is. Pretense. Has anything really changed, honestly? But their life of these great people is just a breath, just a passing. That's all it is. Festus is going to be dead two years from this event we're reading about. He's got two years left on earth. What a, what a, what a, what a matter of grace for him to hear and have to deal with this man, Apostle Paul. Agrippa the second, Herod Agrippa the second, lived to A.D. 100, managed to survive, I guess, through all of Titus' campaigns and destructions, and died at the age of 73. But all these famous people, all these great people, they're gone. Nothing. What good was all their pretense and impression management, their memories Christian Age magazine, I found a quote that I want to sh just share with you. And this is the quote, it's simple. They, all the great people of the world, poets, his, all the history, all the, the great men of history. Listen, they're memories. They're not presences. They're memories. But Christ is a present, personal, living Savior. He's present today. He's real today. He is alive, and Paul is alive today. And everyone who received Jesus, great and small, will live with him forever, King of kings and Lord of lords. So of all the self-important people here, only Paul, this little man, is the emissary of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Next, what happens in our, in our story is that Festus introduces Paul to Agrippa right there in the, in the audience hall. He's in, introducing Paul to Agrippa, and all the prominent military tribunes and other people that gather around. Uh, and he's, but I want you to note in our text how Paul restates his vexing problem of having no legal case. And so we read in verse 24. I'm just going to read through to the end of the chapter. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. 
And therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. How noble all of that sounded. He's really saying, I don't want that axe on my neck. And so that really ends our text for today. And we're going to pick up this story next time uh, when we hear uh, Paul's stirring defense before Agrippa, defense of the gospel, defense of his faith, and defense of the living Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be amazing. But I want, there's a couple take-homes I want you to, to have from this text that we've gone through today. And that is, the first one I'd like to say for you is just by the word trees. Remember the word trees. I'd like to remember the word trees throughout this whole coming week because there's some trees I want you to look at in this story. Remember, first of all, how Jesus taught a tree is known by its fruit. I want you to look at uh, Luke chapter 6 with me, starting at verse 43. I want to read Jesus' words. I want you to take these words to heart. Think about them. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Again, that's Luke 6, 43 through 45. And I just want you to take this home as a, as a, as a sense of the passage and the whole history of Paul being tried again and again and again. First, there the three kinds of trees I see. The first two are bad, and the third one is good. The first tree that Scripture shows us in this passage are the deeply entrenched Jewish authorities, the high priests and the elders, as they're called here in this passage. They're filled with envy, conniving, hatred, deceit, uh, they, they hate any deviation from the 613 rules that they pull out of the, the book of Moses and demand absolute loyalty to. Uh, the text from last Sunday that Drew shared with us revealed that their fondest wish in all of these religious things was the death of Paul. Last week, Drew related the moment in God's Word where they were gathered around him intimidating him. Their hearts were filled with hatred, with murder. These are the bitter fruits of a life that has not found the love of God and His grace. Each tree is indeed known by its own fruit. And now, the second kind of tree that we see in the story are the worldly Roman governors of Judea. First, Felix, and now Festus. Self-important, jaded, skeptical, lovers of power and pleasure, lacking empathy. They dispose of people's lives and fortunes 
often with no more concern than you and I may have for ants or roaches that found their way into our home. And what's, as, as it as concerns spiritual matters, the blood of Christ, the love of God, they have no more clue than the insects they despise. That's, this, is, this is the nature of a fallen heart, an empty heart that has not come to know Christ. And that's partly why, as Drew shared, I think it was two weeks ago, that conviction, conviction for Felix could not become conversion. It simply could not. There's nothing there to, to draw on, could not awaken. So each tree is known by its own fruit. And finally, the third type I want to share with you here is Paul, the third kind of tree in our story. Filled with love for every soul, great and small, has not lost his joy in Christ. His road is troubled with beatings, lashings, shipwrecks, accusations, riots, imprisonment. He retains his peace. He retains his peace through it all. Kept now more than two years in Caesarea, he's patient yet. He's kind yet. Knows that the Lord is in charge. His mission's going forward. Likely he's helping Luke during this time get all the historical details for the writing of, of this story that you and I are reading. And what Paul, Paul later wrote to the Galatians was so true of the fruit of his life, the fruit of this beautiful tree in God's garden. And that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that only God can produce, only God in your heart. You can't produce it. You can't produce an ounce of it, but he, he produces that. And that's what we're seeing in the life of Paul. Love for every soul, great and small, joy and peace. And so this is godly character. The fruit of the man is filled with the Spirit of God. So I just want to ask you by way of application, what kind of tree are you? Just, just now before the Lord, just, just, just ask the Lord, what kind of tree am I? What, what drives my heart? Are you a tree growing in the soil of this world, filled with ambition, aggression, envy, strife? Or are you a tree in the garden of the living God? Are your political or business ambitions, your love of pleasure, are your jealousies and envies, are they stronger than your life in Christ? Have you drifted from His love for you? Have you tapped into some other source for motivation? Have you lost sight of His plan to give you joy and peace in His presence. He wants to do that for you. Or are you standing fast? Are you weathering the storms in His power, letting your roots go, yes, maybe slowly, but deep, deep to drink on His nourishment, drink from His Word, drink from His presence and His goodness. No matter where you are today, you can return to the Lord. Maybe you're with Him and standing strong, and that's good. Stay there. Walk with Him. Stay in His mission. Keep your eyes where His eyes are. You're going to Rome? Okay, that's all right. I'm not suggesting vacation options here, okay? But, you know, what the Lord says where you're going, be happy with that. Go with where the Lord says you're going and, and know that he will, he, will, he will fulfill it. So last thing I want to share with you, I shared the word trees with you as a take-home from this text. Three types of trees. You've got the Jews, you've got the Romans, and you've got Paul. Remember what kind of tree you are, what kind of tree you really want to be. 
okay? And then the last time is times. The life and times of the Apostle Paul, you have your times, we have our times. This time, as I, as I opened, is just as important as the times in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts, as I mentioned, sh at some point shifts to focus on this man, uh, the life and times of the Apostle Paul. If he was such a key figure, and he was, why was he in prison the whole latter part of his life? Confined, chains, guards, uh, first here in Caesarea, finally in Rome. How could this man be just as effective in such boring circumstances, torn away from all the pleasures of life? How could he be just as fruitful then as now? Here's how Acts closes. It's a little preview of coming attractions, right? The last verse of Acts, that's, which is where we're going with our story. Listen, Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. So you can put shackles on a Christian. You can put shackles on, you can, you can kill Christians. You can put shackles on them. You can oppose them in any way possible. But it won't stop the gospel, not in their hearts nor any others. Nothing can hinder the gospel of our living and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing on this earth. And because of God's mission, as Drew said earlier, you and I are essentially immortal until his work for us is complete. I didn't say free from harm. He allows things to happen to us like it did to Paul. He had some very troubled times. Don't be presumptuous because you're a child of God that now you can go the easy way. It's not about that. It's about walking in his in his purposes, walking in his mission. And so nothing stopped Paul, not the beatings, not the lashes, not the shipwrecks, not the prison cells, not the accusations, not the trials, not the chains, nothing, nothing stopped him. And we find the story in Acts so dramatic and exciting, but it wasn't always exciting for Paul. It wasn't always exciting for the participants. Uh, two years in a prison cell for, for Paul, and the scripture just simply mentions it in passing. How were those two years. How were all of those long, non-event-filled days torn away from the things of this world? Listen, I, you know, there's nothing exciting going on there. And I'd, like to, I'd just like to say this, just like you and me. What does this mean? What about our boring daily chores? What about changing those diapers? What about shopping? What about those times when you feel so oppressed, you know, got to take care of all these little details? Listen, people, if you're doing that in the context of the beauty of the name of Jesus and your calling, all of your painting, all of your renovations, all of your lawn mowing, all of your hauling, your planting, everything that you do, whatever it is that you do, caring for your kids, caring for your grandkids, yes, changing the diapers, yes, washing this and scrubbing that, all of those things that you do, in the context of a beautiful Lord and Savior and His mission, context of living in His grace and appropriating His amazing power for two years in prison if need be, for whatever it may be, listen, God is at work and all of that can be submitted to Him and your heart in that as well. And I urge you, I urge you, I plead with you to do that. And remember that those things were done by all the people that we read about in the book of Acts.
They also had to do their shopping. They also had, but they did it in the context of the love of Jesus Christ, having given his life. And along the way, as you're doing these details, as you're shopping, you're going to meet people. God's going to bring opportunities to share. If you're, as the Apostle Paul, if you're that good tree, you'll recognize an opportunity to talk about how great and how good and the risen Jesus Christ is and how wonderful he is. So these are your times, people. Times. If you're a God's special tree, though there be many in the orchard, there's just one you. This is your chapter in the book of Acts. You're walking in it now. This is our chapter. Psalm 139, and this is where I'm going to close, tells us that your very days were already written in God's book before they began. This is Psalm 139 at 16. Your eyes, a prayer, your eyes, Lord, saw my unformed substance. In your book they were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So true for you, my friend. He's written every single day. That's not to say there isn't tension between his, your will and his will. There, there is and will be. Those things work out. That's called sanctification. That's what you're called to. You're called to fight with it, work it out. But your life has a very special purpose in God's plan. Be that tree in God's garden and know that your times are part of his great plan, a part of his mission to bring the good news to your neighborhoods, your towns, and to the countries that are in our world. So let's, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, dear Lord. You're our risen Lord. We, uh, we worship you. We thank you for the central part that your resurrected life plays in this trial before the skeptical Romans and before the hate-filled uh, high priests and leadership of that day. Dear Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for, for bringing us into this family of families in our day. I just ask you, God, make our response to this message, make our response to your words. Bring hope into the lives of people that we know who are without hope today people of our community, people of our city, people of our neighborhoods, people of our state and, and all throughout the world. Lord, bring new faith to new hearts. Show us your will. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.